Take your Bibles with me this evening, please, and turn to Jeremiah 27. Title of the sermon, Late Stage Submission. Today's message, both from the standpoint of Jeremiah's prophecies and from the standpoint of our own thoughts and applications, is going to be a unique one. In various contexts over the past several months, we have had numerous opportunities in this church to consider the essence of faith. That faith sets aside what might be obvious or what might be natural to the flesh in order to pursue something that is promised or assured in the spirit. The concept is going to be taken, if I can say it this way, to an extremity this evening in the request that God is going to make not only to Israel, but really to all of the nations of the regions surrounding Israel. We're going to study this call unto submission and seek to link it to our own lives in a couple of important ways, deriving from the text's necessary principles which will help us. And allow me to set your mindset upon the nature of our considerations this evening before we really dig in. The question is this. When we have wandered from the Lord, when we are thus living in the state of consequences for our poor choices which we have made, and in our minds we come to the point where we finally see what we're doing wrong, where we finally see the, perhaps the shame of our choices or the evil of our choices. And we are tempted to return, but we don't know what that return might look like. And we don't know what kind of spiritual recovery we, may, we might experience. The, the call of this evening will be that there is still a chance there to step out in faith. That it may not mean absolute recovery from all the consequences of our choices. It may not mean that God is going to deliver us from all of the consequences of the things that have come to pass, but that there is still an opportunity in the late stage to submit to God and to find His blessing, though perhaps in the context of our consequences, rather than find His blessing by avoiding the consequences because it's too late for that. You'll understand a little bit more of what I mean, I hope, as we walk through the text and get into our application this evening. What does a return to submission look like when we've already gone down the path of rebellion for far too long? And I'm calling this late-stage submission. It's what we're considering this evening. We pick up in Jeremiah 27, verse 1. The Bible says this, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord, saying... As with previous prophecies, this prophecy is given in the early days of King Jehoiakim. Now, we've been here for a little while now, but remember, each week now for a little while, I've been teasing you and telling you, yes, these are given in the early days of Jehoiakim, and yet there may not actually all be happening in the early days of Jehoiakim. Tonight, this is the message where all of this is going to make, hopefully, make a little bit more sense to you. The previous prophecies given in the early days of Jehoiakim. However, what we're going to find in verse 3 is that while the word was given to Jeremiah in that day, it was a message that was intended to be delivered perhaps a full decade later in the days of Zedekiah. 
And I'll show you how we know this in a moment. But this revelation does two things for us. First, it tells us that our timetable as it relates to the messages which Jeremiah received is not perhaps speaking of the time when Jeremiah is actually writing or speaking this message into the ears of others. Perhaps sometimes only when Jeremiah received the message which was to be spoken at a later date. Second, it reminds us that the focal point of Jeremiah's message should not be unto whom it is given, but rather the content of the message itself, or when it's given, as much as the content of the message itself. So look with me in verses 2 through 4, and we'll try to understand why it is that we see Zedekiah come into this. So the Bible says in verse 2, Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyrus, and to the king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem unto Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them, and say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall ye say unto your masters. So this is really interesting this evening. Effectively what has happened here is that God has told Jeremiah to make bonds and yokes that would go around his neck. Now, the Bible doesn't say what these might look like. There have been neck yokes or bonds that have been characteristically used for oxen throughout time. And then, of course, we have plenty of precedent among human slaves for a neck yoke of any number of sorts as well. These yokes are a mark of control. They are a mark of submission. They kept the person or the creature under the control of the master. Uh, Probably it was a slavery yoke, not so much an oxen yoke, but a slavery yoke that Jeremiah was putting around his neck that Jeremiah was creating. It may not look like uh, that one there. It probably had somewhat of a different uh, look at the end of the day. And um, yet Jeremiah was called to create these yokes. And this was the picture that Jeremiah was called to portray as he made these neck yokes and put them around his neck. But then notice what God tells him to do with them. God then tells him to take these yokes and to walk up to effectively ambassadors or those that would represent the nations round about Israel. He mentions Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. And Jeremiah was to go to those messengers of the kings of the nations that surrounded them who had been sent to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and to give them a yoke. Now, it's here that we find that though this message was given in the days of Jehoiakim, it was actually intended to be enacted in the days of Zedekiah. This is perhaps giving Jeremiah the time to make the yokes, perhaps, that God tells Jeremiah in the days of of King Jehoiakim so that there's time enough to make these yokes and to have them prepared by the time they need to be prepared in the days of Zedekiah. Uh, If you read the commentaries, you'll find that they simply say here there's an error in the text which just boggles my mind. I love how they can say for a thousand years people have been reading this and now another 2,000 years of church history that people are reading this and we are now just deciding that there must be an error in the text when you have Jehoiakim in verse 1 and Zedekiah in verse 3. I don't think that's what we're seeing here. I think the Word of God is inspired and preserved. I think what we find here is that the message was given in the days of Jehoiakim. It is enacted in the days of Zedekiah. Pretty simple explanation. 
So Jeremiah takes these yokes and he goes up to these ambassadors and he hands them a yoke. Interesting thing, right? They're coming, probably coming out of the house of Zedekiah, of the house of the king. And Jeremiah is hanging out outside the courts of the house of the king. And he goes up to these ambassadors and he gives them a slave yoke. And then he gives them a message to take back to the kings of the nations from the God of Israel. So along with this yoke, here is the message beginning in verse 5. God says this to the nations around Israel. I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him and all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land comes and then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and the kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore hearken not ye to your prophets." nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you, to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and that and ye should perish. But the nation that brings their neck, the nations that bring their neck, under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell therein. So God introduces himself to these kings as the God who made the earth, who made man, and who made beast by his great power. So this is the God, right? And Jeremiah goes and he gives each of these ambassadors a yoke and he says, I have a message from the God that made everything. God is telling them, I'm the guy in charge here. You may not know me well. You may not want to believe that I'm in charge, but make no mistake and rest fully assured that I am in fact in charge in what I say goes. This is what God is telling them. And what I say, God says to them, is that all of your land, the land of Edom, the land of Moab, the land of Ammon, the land of Tyre, the land of Sidon, is Nebuchadnezzar's now. That's his land. I'm giving it to him. You are now his servant. And he calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant in this. Take note here, this does not mean that Nebuchadnezzar cares about God at all. He will eventually, if you read Daniel chapter 4, but not right now. The idea that Nebuchadnezzar being God's servant, that simply means that this king has been chosen by God, whether he likes it or not, to accomplish God's purposes. And because of this, whether Nebuchadnezzar cares about God or not, the king does in fact have behind him the authority of God in his conquests. God will bless Nebuchadnezzar's conquests because they are being done according to God's purposes. So God tells these nations, look, I've given your lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. To that end, he says, all nations will serve him. And the best thing that you can do is submit to Babylon. And he tells them, 
if you submit to Babylon, rather than resist him, you will find rest. You'll be allowed to stay in your land. And every nation that refuses to submit, that will not put their necks under the yoke of Babylon, will be punished by God through sword and through famine and through pestilence until they are consumed from off the land. Now, this is a very important prophecy. This prophecy reminds us that it's not only Israel that is under the divine hand of judgment and the divine hand of God here. Yes, Israel had a very unique relationship with God, which brought uniquely heightened blessings and cursings. Israel entered into that relationship, of course, back in Exodus. But every nation is under the hand of God. Let us not forget that. Every nation is under the hand of God. And any nation that resists the Lord does so to its own hurt. These promises against other nations are in fact the same as against Israel. Not, no difference there. The sword, famine, and pestilence. We've been reading about the sword, famine, and pestilence for some time now, right? Only now the nations get to hear it, not just Israel gets to hear it. So to this end, God tells these nations, don't listen to the lies of your own prophets, of your own sorcerers, of your own diviners, of your own enchanters, of your own uh, uh, spiritual mediums. Don't listen to them. See, it seems like everywhere you go, there are liars. No matter where you go, there are liars. There are people that will flatter with the tongue to make you feel good about yourself, even though they're lying to you. And if they don't tell the king to submit to Babylon, then they're lying. And that's what Jeremiah is telling them. God is warning you now. Isn't God merciful? I mean, even these heathen nations, right? God sends Jeremiah to tell these heathen nations, I'm giving you a chance to align with me and so find rest. It's a merciful God. These aren't his people. These, these nations don't regard him. I mean, God is even acknowledging here that their sorcerers and their enchanters are the ones that, that, that should not be listened to, right? God is acknowledging that they are under the, the spiritual rule of pagans. And yet he's telling them, I'm still giving you a chance to regard me and find mercy. What a great God. What a, what a kind God. But those who listen to God and submit to Babylon will be allowed to stay in their land rather than being taken away. One more note before we move on here. Take note of the fact that God is reaching out to these pagan nations and telling them that they can have peace in their land. Don't lose sight of how significant that is. People ask from time to time in the world, if God is so good, why does he allow people to be destroyed? And we've mentioned this several times and it just bubbles up again. Even here, even these pagan nations, even those that are under spe- uh, 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 that have rejected God outright, God is still reaching out and giving them a chance. Don't lose sight of that. We continue in verses, verse 12 through 15. Jeremiah says, I spake also to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words. So he says the same thing to to the king of Judah, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, thou and thy people, by the sword, by famine and by the pestilence, as the Lord hath spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. For I have not sent them, 
saith the Lord. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name that I might drive you out and that ye might perish, ye and the prophets that prophesy unto you. The message is indeed quite the same. Why die? Is basically what God is saying. Why be destroyed? Why not do what God has asked you to do and live in the land? Yes, you will be living under the yoke of Babylon. Yes, you will no longer have complete autonomy. Yes, your king will not be the king. He will be a vassal king underneath the rule of Babylon. But you know what? You can stay in the land. You can live. If you'll just submit to Babylon. Jeremiah says, don't listen to the prophets who are now saying that Zedekiah should rebel. But they were also promising, as we'll see next week, that God would even bring back the vessels that are already in Babylon, bring back the people that are already in Babylon. Next week we're going to read about a prophet's duel between a false prophet and Jeremiah, and they're going to go back and forth. It's going to be very interesting. We're going to learn some things from it. Jeremiah says it's all lies. He turns the message then towards the priests and towards the people in verses 16 and 17. Also I spake to the priests and to all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hearken not to the words of your prophets that prophesy unto you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house shall now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you. Hearken not unto them, serve the king of Babylon and live. Wherefore should this city be laid waste? So Jeremiah speaks this time. He, he, he has spoken to the ambassadors. He spoke to Zedekiah. Now he's speaking directly to the priests and the people. Of course, he's not speaking to the prophets because they're the ones that he's saying are lying. And he's saying, don't regard the lying words. Serve the king of Babylon or else you will either be taken captive, you'll be killed, and the land will be made a wasteland. He continues this message in verses 18 through 22. And this finishes our chapter. But if they be prophets, and if the word of the Lord be with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem go not to Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars and concerning the sea, that would be the, the laver, and concerning the bases and concerning the residue of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took not when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yea, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord, and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon, and there shall they be until the days that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then I will bring them up. Then will I bring them up and restore them to this place. It was several chapters ago now that Zedekiah sent Pasher to Jeremiah asking that the Lord would fight for them. And God turned around and said, not only will I not fight for you, Zedekiah, but I am actually going to fight against you, if you remember that. Well, we have a very similar idea here. Jeremiah says in verse 18, if these prophets were really prophets of the Lord, if they really had the ear of the Lord, then they shouldn't be telling you that the, the vessels in Babylon are going to be brought back. What they should be doing is begging the Lord not to allow the rest of the vessels to be taken because those vessels are already there and they're not coming back. 
Hananiah, a false prophet, will have uh, some words of refutation to say about that next week in Jeremiah 28. But he's saying if they were prophets, then, then they would be interceding for the Lord that, that there would be nothing, that, that, that the people would repent, that what's in the land could stay in the land. Because God says the pillars of the tabernacle or the temple and the sea, the golden laver, which the, wherein the priest washes, and the bases, the remaining vessels, all of those things that Nebuchadnezzar didn't take away when he took away Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, that would be in the second deportation. All of those are going to go too. And God says they're going to stay there in Babylon until a time that God appoints. And we know from history that at the end of the 70 years when Cyrus sends them back, he sends them back with those vessels from the temple. So we have this interesting passage of Scripture. And within this interesting passage of Scripture, we find two very important concepts. The first important concept is the concept of Nebuchadnezzar being called by God his servant and God telling the nations surrounding Israel that God has appointed the land for Nebuchadnezzar and that to resist Nebuchadnezzar is to resist God. That's an interesting point. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar has no fear of God. Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in God at this point. The second interesting thing we find here is this promise that if the nations surrounding Israel and Israel themselves would submit themselves to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, that even though at this point God's declaration is no longer, if you repent, I will spare you from captivity, his declaration is now, well, at this late stage, things are already in motion that are not going to be undone. Nebuchadnezzar already gets all of this land, but if you will submit to me, then there can still be a measure of blessing in the midst of the consequences of your rebellion. And these are going to form the basis for the two points that I would like us to consider together in our application this evening. Point number one of two that we consider is this. God can use anyone, so be careful opposing people rather than principles. God can use anyone, so be careful opposing people rather than principles. In this chapter, God exhorts the people of Israel to submit themselves to Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant to bring about God. God's purposes. Now, it didn't have to be this way, and we'll talk more about that in our second point. Had Israel not been living in rebellion for decades, and, and to a degree really centuries, God would never have needed to raise up a nation like Babylon in order to execute His judgment upon the land. Israel would have lived within the promises of God's blessings that no enemy would ever be able to come against them, that there would be no plagues, that there would be no famines, that they would live in this land in protection, in God's divine protection, and, and that would have and indeed should have been the case. But we're, we're, we're past that now. It's too late for that now. God has told through any number of prophets that they are going to be destroyed, that they are going to be brought into captivity if they don't listen, and they've not listened. So now there is a, the, the snowball is rolling. Things have begun happening. There is a point of no return that the nation has already crossed. And yet though they have already crossed this point of no return, there is still mercy to be found. 
And that's important. And so at this point, God says, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. And remember how hard of a time, if you recall, Habakkuk had with that. We talked about. Where Habakkuk hears these things. And this was in, on Tuesday night, for those of you that, that were here Tuesday night. Habakkuk reads about, or he hears the Lord say that God would use Babylon, the Chaldeans, to judge his people. And Habakkuk says, wait a minute. Are you really going to use a more evil people than yours to judge your people? And Habakkuk is deeply troubled by this. You know, it's, it's difficult not to oppose people that we would perceive to be evil, isn't it? As I mentioned, the whole book of Habakkuk is kind of about this. When Habakkuk hears that God is going to use Babylon to judge Israel, Habakkuk is confused. Habakkuk doesn't like it. And he has to come to terms with this, that God can even use evil people to accomplish his will. And we need to understand this, that God can indeed use evil people to accomplish his will. We need to be careful that in our zeal for the Lord, we fail to see what he is doing through people that we are uncomfortable with. And so get so caught up in opposing the person that we're uncomfortable with that we end up opposing God and God's plan because we're not looking at the principle, we're looking at the person. Let me give you an example. As a fundamental church, we believe very strongly in the biblical doctrine of separation. This is a doctrine which mainline evangelicalism left long ago, really the late 1800s if we want to trace it. And we would certainly not agree with or be in support of those ministries which seek to win the world by being like the world. We oppose music which would seek to win the world by bringing discordant sounds uh, which do not foster peace and order and harmony, harmony into the realm of so-called Christian worship. We oppose those men who will sit in fellowship and association with those who we would consider to be known heretics who should be completely cast out by the church rather than given any sort of legitimacy or platform. And yet, for all of that, we have testimonies of people in this church who went to a Christian rock concert and got saved. Even though we would be opposed to said concert. God can still use a theologian with unsavory associations or lack of certain biblical viewpoints to make a difference in someone's life. God can still use other Bible versions to grow believers into strong and capable ministers of the gospel, even though we would count them as corrupted. And it isn't wrong to stand in opposition to those elements which we believe are outside of sound doctrine. In fact, that's a good thing. It's not wrong for us to oppose that which we believe is not best. In fact, that is a good thing. It is not wrong for us to oppose compromise. In fact, that is a good thing. But be careful that in your zeal to oppose compromises, you don't disregard God's capacity to use things yet to touch others. Be careful that I don't get to the point in my life where I say, because I believe the King James is, is descendant of the Textus Receptus and that the Textus Receptus bears the marks 
of God's preservation in a way that the critical text does not and that there is corruption there, that that means no one can be saved unless it's out of a King James Bible. Be careful you don't go there. That you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That you, you are willing to, that, that in your zeal for, for purity, you are willing to go to the place where you say, God can't use anything that is not pure. Because God does. And thank God for that because that means he can use me. I'm not trying to muddy waters this evening. And no doubt that when there's compromise, as I'm giving the examples, particularly compromise in the church, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't compromised, right? Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan. So we're not talking about a one-to-one thing here. But no doubt when there's compromise, there are greater, there's greater damage being done. We, we, we acknowledge that. That's why we refute compromise. That's why we stand against compromise. There will be greater consequences for those imperfections and for those compromises. But don't deny in your zeal the fact that God can still use people that are flawed. Don't deny even that God can use people that are well outside of what is acceptable to believers. That God can use heathen, pagan, unbelievers to accomplish His purposes. Because He can, and He does, all the time. Paul said something interesting in Philippians 1.18 that might kind of reflect what I'm trying to say. He said this, Philippians 1, beginning of verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. <coughs> Excuse me. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul is speaking here of his own bonds. In fact, he's writing from prison. And as he's writing from prison, he says that there are things that have happened to him and that those things have been done to the furtherance of the gospel. That God has used authorities in his life to put him in prison because that has actually increased the gospel and the spread of the gospel. So we see pagan, unbelieving authorities persecuting a believer being used by God to further the gospel. But it gets, even more, it gets even deeper than this, doesn't it? It gets even more complicated than this. He says, he's rejoicing here, and he says that there are those who, because of his bonds and hearing about his bonds and hearing about his courage, whereby he was willing to stand in the face of opposition and be thrown in prison for the gospel, were emboldened by that and said, well, if Paul can do it, then I'm going to do it too. And he was emboldened to go and to share the gospel as well. And Paul says, that's a great thing. He said, but then there's these other people who don't like me. And so they, completely outside of any sincerity, 
preach Christ out of contention, hoping that if they preach Christ in the area where I was preaching Christ in a, in, in a, in a contentious way, if they preach Christ not sincerely, that they can make my imprisonment worse. And so here are these evil people who are attempting to make it worse for Paul by preaching the gospel, who are attempting to make it worse for Paul by, by uh, insincerely seeking to add affliction to his bonds by preaching Christ out of contention. And Paul says this, who cares if Christ is being preached? Now notice he's not saying here if Christ is being preached wrongly, right? Or anything of the sort. But he's saying if, if the gospel's getting out, what do I care if they're sincere? Or if they're just trying to add affliction to my bonds? An interesting idea here. Again, Paul isn't saying that those who were contentious were okay, that these people are, are godly people and that they're fine with the Lord. He's not saying that. He's not saying that they were being good representatives of the gospel because they certainly weren't. He's not saying that they weren't going to have judgment and stand before the Lord for their choices because they most certainly would. But Paul was separating the person and the motives for their actions with their actions themselves. And while the person and the motives for preaching the gospel were not correct, the gospel they preached, Paul says, at least it got out. And I'm going to rejoice in that. Because God is using these people, even apart from their knowledge or intention, for His sake, for His glory, and for his, the furthering of His purposes. Now, Paul was not rejoicing in their evil. Paul was not rejoicing in what they were doing. Paul would not have joined their movement or associated himself with them publicly and fellowshiped with them because at least they preached the gospel. He would not have done that. They would have been rebuked, most likely, in any other circumstance. But at least if their evil was to be manifest against Paul, it would redound to the preaching of the gospel. And that is kind of the idea here. And as we seek to apply this concept deeper, this point is admittedly difficult to address because as I say these things they can certainly be misunderstood misconstrued and I'm, I'm hoping that, that you understand where I'm trying to go with this this idea that God can use anyone this idea as we see it in Nebuchadnezzar I'm walking a fine line this evening choosing to remain purposefully vague in some of my points, backing them up with specific examples that I hope will highlight what I'm getting at while leaving the door open for any number of examples which some of us might agree and some of us might not agree with. And, and if we sought to discuss them, perhaps we could end up uh, in a consensus or perhaps we could end up in some true controversy. Uh, but, but I give these examples a as a way of trying to get you to understand 
wrap your mind around the idea here that God is calling Nebuchadnezzar his servant and that God is calling for these nations, including Israel, to submit themselves. He is calling his nation of his people to submit to his servant and the servant that he is calling his people to submit to, the king that represented the theocracy of Israel, the king that represented Israel, and he is calling upon that king to submit himself to God's servant and that this servant is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a heathen, an unbeliever, and a pagan. And so these points are naturally difficult to swallow, but when understood in the right light, I am convinced can help us. So if a point or an illustration that I've given already or that I will, I will continue to give, if, if it seems uncharacteristic or incorrect, I'd encourage you to think through them carefully uh, seek clarification from me if you need to so that we don't have a, a point of contention here because we are uh, admittedly in difficult ground. It's difficult to delineate lines of acceptability and tolerance and compromise when we're dealing with people and nations and of things of which we don't approve and the, and the scriptures don't approve. Jeremiah's prophecies, there, there's little doubt in my mind, did not cause him to start looking at Babylon with any less contempt or frustration. The fact that God says Nebuchadnezzar is my servant does not mean that, that Jeremiah was going to go to the high priest and say, hey, you, know, you really need to listen to Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and listen to what he has to say about, about religious things. Uh, Jeremiah was not about to go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, what do you think about the Old Testament law? Why don't you tell us what the Old Testament law says? That was not going to be Jeremiah's deal, right? Nebuchadnezzar is an unbeliever. He is, uh, the, Israel, God was not calling Israel to submit themselves to his spiritual leadership here. But God was saying, Nebuchadnezzar is a servant in my hand to bring about my purposes, and you need to submit to the bondage that he is going to bring you under. And in the case of Babylon, at least the people had Jeremiah and Habakkuk and others telling them that Babylon was going to be used by God in this way, whereas we in our day don't have the audible voice of the prophets to guide us into the pagans that God has chosen to use. And so things get a little more difficult when we try to bring about examples in our day. When I try to uh, label illustrations to draw, I, I, I would love to draw you to various politicians, but you know what? I'm not going to do that this evening. But the very fact that we know that it is not beyond God to use pagans should temper the kind of dogmatic zeal which would cause us to shut out anything or anyone that does not look act or think like us. Now again, that does not mean that we invite the pagan into the church because we think God is using him. No, 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 right? We maintain our purity. We don't compromise. We maintain our zeal. And yet we can acknowledge and not resist what God might be doing in someone else without acknowledging that, what, and that, that everything they do is good. I hope this makes sense. It should cause us to be careful lest we exalt ourselves into thinking that only people like us can be used by God. And this is something that our circles have fallen into at various times in history. Thinking that just because a ministry or a person or a nation has compromised or is not walking in accordance with the Lord or, or does not believe the Lord, that somehow that means that they are unusable and so we resist everything that they do and we deny any fruit that might be born out of 
compromised ministry or whatever the case may be. And if we do fall into this place, ironically, we run the risk of being elevated in pride by the which God must in his faithfulness and consistency begin to resist us. So we need to be careful here. To this end, let us seek care, balance, perspective regarding the work of God in this world. We stand on principle. We never forsake truth. We never compromise the truth. But wherever the purposes of God are being fulfilled, be careful that your disagreement with the vessel that God has chosen to bring about his purposes, no matter how marred or dishonorable that vessel might be, does not cause you to reject the fruit that that person or nation or whatever body might be doing for the Lord. I hope that makes sense. Not easy to express, but I hope that made sense. Second point, this one's no less controversial. Maybe a little bit less controversial. Actually, probably a lot less controversial. Point number two. When the consequences of sin become inevitable... Sometimes submission to God means submission to those consequences, not deliverance from those consequences. Within the past several chapters, really the whole 11 years of the reign of Zedekiah, it has become apparent that we are past a point of no return in the land, as I said before. Babylon is coming. They will be in control. But this does not mean that God's mercy is completely undone or that there is no reason yet to repent. There is always, always, As long as you're alive, there's always time to repent and there's always reason to repent. I've called this late stage submission. When the consequences of one evil's actions have already taken place and must continue, while simultaneously a person is determined to repent and submit to the will of God, even by the very act of submitting to the consequences of their actions. Did you know that you can show submission to God by submitting yourself to the consequences of your actions? Rather than saying, God, I repented. Why haven't you delivered me? Maybe it's God, I'm repenting by submitting to these consequences. That the consequences of the actions as they have played out and me living in patience and in perseverance in the midst of those consequences that I have brought upon myself by my sin might be the very best way to reflect glory unto God. This is not an easy concept and it is one which the church today, not this church, but the church at large today hates. Hates. Has rejected outright. But it's something that if we can get a hold of, I think it can help the church. To that end, I want to make a couple of observations. First, when we are bearing the consequences of our sinful choices and we choose to repent, it does not necessarily mean that God will remove all of the consequences of that choice. Sometimes He can't. Sometimes the damage is already done. Second, when we repent and the consequences of our past sins continue... Submitting to those consequences is as much a part of the process of repentance as is turning from continued sin. Now, let me make one thing clear before we move on. I'm not saying here 
that if a person has, has, uh, uh, is living out the consequences of their sins, that they're marred and that God can't use them and that they can't be saved or that, they, that any of those things, right? God can still use you. You are still a vessel that God can use, but he may not be able to use you in all the same ways that he could before. God still loves you and there's still coming a day where if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will stand before God blameless and unreprovable in His sight. And He will let you, He he will look in the Lamb's book of life and your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and you will enter into glory and you can even hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. None of that is off the table for you just because you've made mistakes, whether before or after salvation. But, Sometimes the consequences of our choices, and may I say this as well? Sometimes the consequences of other people's choices in our lives don't just go away because we've been saved. Don't just go away because if it's our choice, we've repented. And we need to learn to deal with that. Let me give you an example of what I mean here. Every week... I step into the jail and I speak to people who have made really bad choices. And some of these men and women get saved and they turn from being their own God or following the God of this world to serving the true and living God. And in this newfound knowledge under their new and loving master, their hearts begin to be conformed to the heart of God and new desires begin to grow within them. Desires which perhaps they've never felt before. Desires of virtue. They desire thus to work to have a family, to raise children, to serve others. And many of these things are still fully achievable. But there are some with whom I speak where those, some of those things are now off the table. Biblical obedience might mandate then rather than go start a new life where no one would know him, a man may instead need to spend the best years of his life living as close as possible to estranged children so that he can have some say in their lives and not perpetuate the cycle of fatherless homes. Even though it will mean him giving up the best years of his life where he could go and start a new life, he needs to stay home and he needs to stay, do whatever he can to stay close to those kids. Those choices that he made in his past don't just go away because he got saved. His kids don't just disappear. No matter how many moms... It, he, the, of those, the, the kids don't just disappear because he got saved. There, there are consequences to past choices that might change the way his life needs to be lived now. And the best way he can show his love and submission to the Lord is by submitting himself to those choices, to those consequences. And by doing something to change the lives of those with whom he brought uh, those of whom he brought into the world now this isn't what he would have to do but maybe submission to the consequences of his previous choices is what he ought to do and this isn't a popular message to tell people that sometimes their decisions have major consequences And that being a Christian or repenting of a certain sin does not always make those consequences go away. But sometimes submission to Christ means submitting 
to consequences of our actions in loyalty to the deeper principles of Christ. Let me give you a few other examples. And I know with each illustration and example, there's greater opportunity for controversy, but let's just do it anyway. What about the believer whose spouse divorces him or her and the Bible says, let him remain unmarried or be reconciled to his spouse? And it wasn't their fault that they were divorced. Does it really mean that they need to live the rest of their life single because their their spouse divorced them in a circumstance? And let's just, I mean, I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding divorce, but let's say, let's let's just run down the scenario as it's presented in 1 Corinthians. Do we really need to say that? That's not compassionate on him. Does he really have to give up the rest of his life because of it? Look, it does. And happy is the man or the woman who can learn to honor God by submitting to the consequences of their life choices. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the whole point of them getting remarried was to secure their happiness. No. Not if they're wanting to follow Christ. Not if they're wanting to be loyal to the word of God. Not if they want God's blessing upon them. They might be able to find material happiness by, do, by going down that path, but that is not the path of blessing. And that's not an easy thing. It, it's not an easy thing to look someone in the eye and say, yes, you have to lose out on some things that you might otherwise have because of choices in your past. And you get it now, but you know what? The choices are already there. It's already happened. You're in the late stage now, and late stage submission does not always look like all the vessels come back from Babylon, all the captives come back from Babylon, and we get to live in our land anymore. Late stage submission says those vessels stay in Babylon, those people stay in Babylon, and if you will just submit to the Lord, then maybe the rest of the vessels won't end up there too. And if you will just submit to the Lord, then maybe, just maybe, you won't end up there too. That's late stage submission. And it's not easy. But it's right. What about the person that made a bad decision and disqualifies themselves from a pastoral ministry? But they find out that they have a gift for teaching or for preaching. They have a gift for communicating. Or the pastor whose children have not followed in the faith and so they find themselves disqualified according to 1 Timothy. Should they really have to yield the effectiveness of the ministry that they have built or the effectiveness of the ministry that they could have because of these things? Well, yes. Yes. There are times where the way that God can be most honored in me is to submit to the consequences of my actions or choices rather than seek deliverance from them. So that I can tell my children, you know what, children? I had a gift for teaching, but I was, I was unqualified. Well, does it really matter that much, Dad? Yes, it does, son. It does. Because the Word of God is true. And because God's blessing is found in obedience. Because blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. Psalm 119.2 Now, all of these examples are vague, somewhat broad-brushed. I understand that there are any number of circumstances within them where you could say, well, what about this? What about that? And I get that. And again, I'm not trying to bring about offenses this evening. But what I am saying is that sometimes the choices that we make or the circumstances in which we find ourselves have consequences which repentance and restoration of fellowship don't undo. And I think I've said that quite a few times now. 
Repentance is always good, and indeed, repentance is always necessary. But just because a sin is forgiven by God doesn't mean that we are delivered from all of its consequences. And young people, let me remind you, this is why it's so important that you listen to wisdom. That you don't just do what you want believing that there's always the ability to fall back on repentance. Indeed, there is always for always forgiveness with the Lord. Till the day that we die, forgiveness, repentance, they are on the table. Mark it down and mark it down well. But forgiveness and restoration of fellowship does not always mean that the things that happen between hearing and forgiveness, the rebellion in between, it does not mean that that is not going to have any bearing on my life going forward. Repentance and forgiveness, restoration, do not mean that the consequences, whether spiritual or physical, just are going to magically disappear. Now, God is gracious, and there are many times where He does not deal with us according to our sin, and He grants us by His grace the means by which to, to avert the deeper or the potential consequences of our choices. And I can't tell you how many times I've experienced that in my own life, where I say, wow, that could have gone there, but it didn't. Thank God, because He could have let me go there. And we rely on that, and, and, and we need that, and God amply provides that to us. But this is why it is so important to learn when you're young what is right and to believe it and to obey it. Blessed is the man or the woman that can learn to live within the context of the Word of God without having to make the mistakes. And if the mistakes are made, blessed is the man or woman who can learn to live within the context of their consequences rather than become resentful or live in denial that they should have to bear the consequences of these actions and the circumstances in their lives. Blessed is the man or the woman that is able to see that living patiently and joyfully in the natural consequences of their actions is an opportunity in itself to glorify God when he would ask us to do it. And it glorifies the Lord by justifying the design of God in this world and patiently submitting oneself to that design. That by putting ourselves at a physical disadvantage in order to remain loyal to the principles of Scripture, even why or when society would not hold us to those disadvantages. Doing this is to magnify the word of God, to uphold his word in the eyes of all that see and know the circumstances within which you find yourself. And this is where Israel finds herself in Jeremiah 27. She has sinned, and at this point, repentance would not bring about a complete removal of the consequences. But if they were to repent at this late stage and submit at this late stage, they could manifest this by willingly submitting themselves to the yoke of this pagan nation, the yoke of their conquerors. And so through this submission, which would otherwise seem incredibly backward, right, both nationally and biblically, but by submitting themselves to the yoke of this nation, they would be, they would actually be acknowledging the Lord, His wisdom his will, and justifying and vindicating God's righteousness through their submission in the eyes of others. And maybe it needs to be this way. 
in the lives of some Christians, perhaps here. Things have not gone as planned. Mistakes you've made in which consequences at this point are irreversible. And society or family, maybe even a church, has given you an out where you can walk away from the consequences of your actions even though those consequences are just or even though it offends a deeper biblical principle. Or maybe you cannot walk away from said consequences and now you feel entirely unusable because those consequences disqualify you from something or they make you feel as though you are unusable as a believer. But can you see that sometimes? Though the consequences of sin might be inevitable because of the late stage in which we repent, your very submission, openly and patiently, can in fact bring glory to the Lord and put you back into a place of usability with Him. Sometimes submission to God means submitting, even to consequences, rather than being delivered from them. Now, God forbid any of us would need such a message. God help that none of us has gotten ourselves into a place where we have entered into the need for late stage submission and repentance because of a time of walking in rebellion that has borne out true and inevitable consequences in our lives. But let us not be afraid to justify God, not just through repentance of sin, but even when called upon to submit to those consequences, bearing them with patience. Thank God for any number of times, as I mentioned, where our sin has no lingering effects on body or spirit, where there is a healing that can be done, where there is a restoration that can be realized in full. But if that cannot be the case, let us be numbered among those who would yet repent and accept what would be best according to the Lord. Again, it is my deepest prayer that the spirit and letter of my application this evening would not be misunderstood. Both of these points have a a tremendous capacity to be misunderstood, and I pray that they were uh, presented in in, in a manner that was clear and that um, checked enough of the what-if boxes um, that, that we can draw attention to something that is important without getting distracted by all of the different Uh, Scenarios wherein my words might not apply properly. I desire to draw attention to, to, to the idea that the grace of God calls us to react to consequences in a certain way, that the grace of God calls us to recognize that God can use people that we would uh, perhaps discern in any other circumstance to be unusable. Understanding how we can glorify God by submitting ourselves to things that would be outside of the norm of what we would expect as it relates to, 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 to biblical standards. Even how in the midst of imperfect situations such as Babylon's dominance here in Jeremiah 27, God was yet willing to give them the hope of staying in the land if only they'd submit and and, and bring about a late stage submission. I pray that God would grant each of us the knowledge and the wisdom to understand these principles as they play out and understand how it is that we can apply them to our lives in a way that will enable us to have the humility to, to not resist the principles that are played out even by people uh, who are are not godly and that God would have uh, give us the wisdom to understand 
the power and the potential of living in late stage submission through submitting to consequences not uh, if, if the will of the Lord would be and not simply expecting God to erase them all at the moment of repentance. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.